You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello everybody and welcome to Middle East Analysis. How many times have I said that? I know for a fact it's over 160, which may surprise you, probably won't surprise the person opposite me, the wonderful, the lovely, the amazing, the friend that is Dr. Harry Hagopian. Look at you smiling at me and you've got a set of headphones on. What's going on? I've got my headphones on. I saw them and I thought it, they might look more professional if I put the headphones on. Do you feel more professional? No. <laughs> Well, I hope what you say is going to be sparkling and scintillating. Well, we'll see about sparkling and scintillating now that you've used the adjectives that don't usually get attributed to me, lovely and all that. But mm. uh, let's see how it goes. I mean, I'm being led entirely. I said this on social media and I'll say it at the start of this program. I'm being led entirely by you. This is an unprepared, unscripted uh, episode, and I'll see where you'll take me with it. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for it being unprepared and unscripted. And actually, perhaps my voice is a little bit too upbeat, considering. But, but maybe that's why I'm being whimsical and using lovely adjectives to describe Dr. Harry Hagopian. Because after 12 years, 11 years... Easily years. 11, 12 years, yeah. I mean, maybe not all under the guise of Middle East analysis, but it's probably over 12 years for yeah. all our podcasts yeah. together. Now, it might not be the end of all our podcasting endeavours. I certainly hope it isn't. But listeners, I am really sorry to say this is the last, in this guise at least, Middle East analysis. True. True. Mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this is the last one, Middle East analysis Uh, ends pretty much uh, with this episode and in some ways it is a sad moment because it's something that we appropriated and we owned. Mm -hmm. It is something that we did outside the restrictive bounds of officialdom. It is something delicately put. (laughs) It is something that we did where we were not afraid to express our own views Mm. and to analyze issues, developments, in a blunt and frank way rather than try to disguise them with all kinds of and all forms of sophistry. So all that has been Middle East analysis and it has pleased some people no end. I know that. I know that some people, quite important people, used to listen to it because they're not used to listen to the way we used to analyze uh, issues, themes across the MENA and Gulf region without the icing, without the nice words, without the reassuring words, uh, and sometimes without the praise. Uh, but uh, at the same time, there were people who sort of thought that it's too blunt. But there you go again. Now, this or is. Or too much humor sometimes. For very sometimes, serious matters. Exactly. Sometimes too much humor. And people said you're being a little bit too lighthearted. Mm. And my answer to that is that we're still alive. And the fact that there are heavyweight issues across the MENA and Gulf regions, and I go back there because that's primarily my neighborhood, uh, politically and otherwise. Uh, if we can't laugh every now and then, not only not at the issues, but at ourselves exactly. and have the humor 
to say that. First of all, that's very British. It's also very lightening, unburdening to sort of be able to talk about something as awful as depopulation and settlements in Palestine all the way to the anti-constitutional moves of what's happened in uh, Tunisia recently, all the way to the fact that Libya, a country gurgling with oil, is knee-deep in corruption. We do all this, but we still maintained our humor. So uh, for that, I thank those listeners who faithfully followed our Middle East analysis and its predecessor podcasts as well. But I also... Uh, thank you for basically being the captain of the ship because it's very nice for me to come and analyze and talk. And yes, I have the connections and I have the know-how and I have the politics behind me, but it needs somebody to steer the boat. And you've been ideal for that because you haven't taken yourself too seriously whilst at the same time being a serious person when it comes to your profession. Well, you know, I've I've got a lot to thank you for, and I'm not even going to apologise for this being a bit of a love-in at, <laughs> at this point. But I'd only made occasional trips, as you know, to the Middle East yeah. and have, have never been in North Africa, if yeah. I'm honest. So I've learned a lot from you from very superficial experiences for myself, actually. You know I love Iran, for instance, yeah. despite only having 11 days in the country. And isn't Iran in the news these days? Isn't it just? Isn't it right at the centre of a lot of political manoeuvres? It is. I mean, what is happening in Iran, and uh, I'm digressing a bit, but what is happening in Iran is awful. Almost 500 people killed, four young men executed. The whole country is up in shambles. The government is doubling down and sort of becoming even more restrictive. Uh, Iran, a fantastic civilization and a fertile country, is being wasted away. What human beings do is sometimes unforgivable. It is, but it's the human beings that I met in Iran that made me feel the warmth I feel for the country. And the hope for the country, because mm. no matter what has happened, whether it's organizations, whether it's militias, whether it's mullahs, whether it is autocrats in parts of the MENA region, whatever happens, at the heart of it lies an Arab population men and women, usually young, because demographically speaking, they are young, who are still full of hope. And despite all the burdens and despite being kicked in the backside time and time again, they still maintain that hope that one day things will get better. And if we look at our history in Europe, we had very bad times here as well Mm. before we started vaunting and uh, praising ourselves that we're so good. So there's always time for a curve, and the curve goes up and comes down and then goes up again. That's uh, the history of life, I suppose. I'm now talking like somebody who's almost going to withdraw into... Uh, I don't know, into a cave. <laughs> I should have pre-recorded eulogies for each other, shouldn't I? No, but on, on a serious note, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, I think back at all the things we've talked about since 2008, probably. Mm-hmm. All those things, you know, from self-emoliation to get your voice heard or visually to be seen, let's say. Arab Springs, green revolutions, barrel bombs, dictators, the eternal 
dagger in the heart, Israel-Palestine. And, and I have to say, I, I know from the Oslo Accords that you were involved in onwards and the many, many minutes, I would say minutes, probably hours that we've dedicated to talking about Israel-Palestine. Without us getting too topical, because that wasn't the idea of this, really, I, I was quite moved by a YouTube piece you did not so long ago about Israel-Palestine because it came across as very frustrated, actually. You talked about your involvement. You talked about your pain. You talked about the new government in Israel and, you know, the two-state solution as the solution, but one that may never be realised. And, and it was almost like you gave up. Actually, I felt the pain of that. You were saying, I'm, I, I think you actually did say you cried, actually, to be honest. Yeah, in a previous episode, I did say that I, I cried at the inhumanity of the human being. Mm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I've often said that there will come the day when Palestine will be a sovereign state of its own, where Palestinians will be able to run their own lives rather than have that run for them by an occupying power that is pretty much a behemoth. But I've also said that I would love this to happen during my lifetime because it is it is so cataclysmic an event, uh, the culmination of so many efforts over so many decades running from before 1948 all the way to 2023. I've always wanted to see, to witness that. And I think in that episode of YouTube that I recorded, I realized that I'm not going to live long enough to be able to see the rebirth of Palestine. And therefore, that was a sad moment for me uh, to acknowledge that. But at the same time, it was a moment where, because you mentioned that I was involved with second track negotiations and the Oslo process, what we're seeing these days is not only the fact that Oslo is discredited, that the two-state solution is impractical, then the one-state solution or binational solution is almost unachievable uh, given the realities of the Israeli political makeup. But what we are also seeing, I think, with this new government in Israel, with a prime minister who is pretty much weak because he's got partners in his government who are there to keep him as prime minister, but who are in some ways running the show, they are into this religious Zionism concept, which wants to take the Israel-Palestine conflict to pre-Oslo. So we're not only talking about the discreditation of Oslo, we're talking about the cancellation of Oslo entirely. Therefore, all this uh, blah, blah about zones A, B, and C, and who has authority over what, the creation of an authority which was initially meant to take care and manage the lives of Palestinians until it became so wasted itself that it no longer served that purpose. But I can see members of the Netanyahu cabinet, two or three of them clearly come to mind, who want to take us back to pre-Oslo. In other words, occupy the whole land back and uh, tell them how it should be done and they have to do it or else they will be punished. And what does punished mean? Punished means everything from 
humiliation to uh, taking your citizenship away for the Palestinian Arabs in the Green Line, all the way to taking over all the land. All this is happening, and it is a difficult moment to think that you labor so hard on a problem. And I have never hidden the fact from our listeners that I earned my political stripes from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before I basically went into the rest of the MENA and Gulf regions. It is a sad moment, and it is a sad reality, not only for Palestinians. It's a sad reality for Israel itself, who's being robbed of its democracy because of a number of politicians who have different designs for the country and the demonstrations that are already beginning to take place in Tel Aviv and elsewhere are already a symbol of the fact that there is hope. But that hope is a flickering flame at the moment, given the realities on the ground. Now, I would, I'm not going to take exception, I try not to take too much exception to anything you say, but It does make me feel sad when you say that you don't think you'll see that in your lifetime. I totally understand it. And if you're doing the flow chart, perhaps that's where you end up, I'm afraid. But that said, I do think Berlin Wall. I do think about the speed that when things do move, they tend to move extremely fast. So maybe there'll be 20 years of this pain ongoing. I hope not, but everything points towards that. But then maybe it'll change very quickly. Is that not possible? Well, yes, hope springs eternal, and we have been talking about hope just now and the possibility that people might come to their senses, that the outside powers who are basically helping manage the the conflict in Israel-Palestine pretty much just as they are with the rest of the region, that they might suddenly think it's time to give Palestinians a say in all of this. But I think there is a slight difference with the Berlin Wall because I remember, and I was very excited when I saw them chipping the blocks of that wall, that there was already, there were signs, indications that that was happening in Europe. Those indications are not happening now in Israel-Palestine. If anything, we're going exactly in the opposite direction. We're becoming, in Israel, the political establishment is becoming more right-wing, more radicalized, more extreme, more fringe right. And it's going to take a lot of time to correct that uh, swing, that swerve. And I don't know whether we'll see it in my lifetime or not. I'd love uh, to be able to see it. But, uh, I mean, sadness gives you the answer. Yeah, isn't that true? And actually, this the, the wall analogy, you've only got to look at the separation wall, haven't you? I'm afraid. And you're Absolutely. R- you're right about the indicators with, with the Berlin Wall, and, and they're not there. If anything, I think we'll see more separation and more walls in this particular reality. So. I mean, the separation wall, as I call it, some people call it the apartheid wall, in uh, in uh, the West Bank, the way it basically snakes through the whole West Bank, the way it actually eats up some of the Palestinian occupied territory, uh, the way it basically regulates people's lives. All you need to do is go to Bethlehem to see the reality of that wall as it 
basically encroaches upon uh, Palestinian territory, go and see what's happening with the demolitions, with the depopulation, look at what's happening in the Hebron Hills in the south of the West Bank with Masafir Yatta, look at all these things, and then you can realize that there is an intent to cancel, it's a cancel culture, to cancel the Palestinian conflict. And countries like Europe, which used to support the self-determination and the hope that Palestinians had for a sovereign state of their own, they're so busy these days from Ukraine, the war, to Russia, to China, to all other issues, that their support shouldn't be taken for uh, granted. So in a sense, I think the whole region, actually, the whole region is in a pickle. And uh, Israel-Palestine, in my opinion, leads that uh, way. Oh, it does. And I think of even my limited experiences in places like Hebron, when you can see ladders and people going out of the back rather than the front. Anything with zones and borders and walls results in a fundamental shift in in a right of access, in movement. It changes everything, doesn't it? We've seen school children that are separated from their school because it's the other side of the wall. Absolutely. You've got, if you go to the Kremizan Valley, which is next to Bethlehem, you've got the Christian school on one side of the wall and you've got the convent on the other side of the wall. So you've got to find little gates where the Israeli a soldier would allow to open that door for you so you can communicate from one from the convent to the school or from the school to your house so it is it is it's sad seeing little primary school kids having to, to go through that it is and growing and up with that because that forms your ideas doesn't of course it? it does it forms your not only your ideas but it also uh, anneals your identity and to some extent it also impacts the way you behave in the future. And this, for me, is not just occupation, illegal though that is. It is intentional humiliation. And that is sort of, that goes against the grain for me because that kind of humiliation is unforgivable. And unfortunately, not only in the Israeli-Palestinian context, but across much of the MENA region or the Swana region, if you want to call it that, there is that humiliation. There is the governor and the governed, and that is how it works. And this is what we've done over the past uh, two decades of trying to talk about what the ordinary man or woman is trying to do in this region in order to be able to aspire for something better in order to build himself or herself up and in order to unshackle themselves from what has happened all the way from the history of colonialism in the region to what is happening today. Do you know, it reminds me a little bit, and this is this was a popular novel I was reading by James Lee Burke, the veteran um, American writer, and he wrote about the, the fighting down below, basically, between two groups and the rich man on the hill. Yep. And it was very much, it was just a little throwaway line, but I thought, oh, how apt is this? Not only for most of life, but certainly mm. in that regional context, mm. the region that mm-hmm. we love and talk about so much, about how the man looks down when he could be bothered, but he couldn't be bothered very often. 
and yet it's all playing out down below not True. really touching him that much not bothering him that much not changing his life that much and it does get me to think though that the problem with the region and you're going to probably say I'm, I'm you know it's, it's cliched and I'm an idealist but it's it's not only old ideas it's old leaders isn't it how many times have we spoken about the eternal survivor Netanyahu we've spoken about uh, you know Mubarak over the years we've spoken about um, the Syrian uh, Assad regime. No, no, no one more so than than Bashar al-Assad, of course. And and the, but but these people, and, and we sort of, when we did get it wrong, speculated that well, you can't survive that. How can you come out of that unscathed? There will be a change, and we've been wrong on those, especially Syria. And we have been wrong in all of these. We have been wrong about Syria. We've been wrong pretty much the way we approached the. Uh, Arab revolutionary uprisings, as the veteran journalist uh, Rami Khouri puts or describes the so-called Arab Spring, because that was basically an effusion of hope, which was totally quelled, which was totally extinguished. And what has happened since then is so much money and so much political power has been put into reversing the trend and going back into the governor, the person who rules, the president or whatever, and the people. And what we have seen is that in some countries today, Egypt is an example which is now one of the darlings of the West. Uh, Egypt is an example uh, where we have gone back to the authoritarianism that was so, so prevalent pre the so-called Arab Spring. Now people say, I wish uh, Mubarak was still there instead of Sisi, because at least then he was a benevolent dictator. This one is a dictator, but the word benevolent has been dropped from the lex, the political lexicon of Egypt. The same is happening everywhere. Look at uh, Libya. Uh, people were saying, okay, a very, very... Uh, savage death for Gaddafi, yeah. but people were saying, okay, and I've often told you about how I often said that Libya is the unsullied, unpolluted Cyprus because of its beauty, its shores, etc. And people were thinking, wow, maybe Libya with all the oil it has, at least it's not a poor country mm. like some of the other countries, Syria, uh, Jordan, others that it could make something of itself if it has the proper management and the proper political direction. And what has happened now? Corruption is rampant. There is so much oil that's being sold. The money that is coming in is being distributed to uh, this person who backs me or that person. The salaries of the bureaucrats has gone beyond the pale. We don't have one government in Libya. We have two governments in Libya, one based in Tripoli, one based in Benghazi. And now there is even talk, and it's happening on the ground, of a third government. And no wonder that the United Nations are basically pulling their hair out. And no wonder that people are saying, where is Libya going? But take Libya, take Syria. So many people died as a consequence of the uh, uprisings in Syria. Uh, One third, and that is a very minimalist 
uh, uh, number of the people became refugees and left the country. Look at Iraq, gurgling with oils, one of the richest Arab countries with so much oil, and yet it is being uh, caught up in a tug of war between different interests and different uh, peoples. Look at Iran. We just touched upon Iran. Wherever I turn, I rarely find a situation where I can say things are okay. Palestine, it's meltdown. Jordan, which I've always admired and which is basically my birthplace, I have often said that Jordan is one of the exceptions, one of the lights in the region. Well, at the moment, the economic situation is so bad in Jordan that you have protests happening in Ma'an and in other parts of the kingdom sort of saying this can't continue. So wherever you look... We've wept over Lebanon. We wept over Lebanon. I mean, it's very interesting because we're talking about Lebanon when the Maronite patriarch of Lebanon is saying, don't forget us. us, And he's come to the UK to try and garner support uh, for the Christians of uh, Lebanon. Now, that's sectarianism for you, but forget that for a moment. Lebanon, how many times have we said, how long can Lebanon go without a president, without a proper government, without an anti-corruption uh, agenda, with the parliament actually electing a, a president rather than going through 10 or 11 chapters of a charade of getting together supposedly to elect somebody, nothing happens, then you close the doors and try again a few days later. This is why uh, I'm sad, and it is, it's not nice. We're talking now, it's very interesting, we're talking about a lack of democracy, mm-hmm. but we're talking in a way that is both analytical and personal, uh, James. And that reminds me of the Athenian agora, that marketplace which used to be at the birthplace of democracy yeah. uh, in uh, in Greece, which basically where people would sit and discuss and talk about everything from politics and religion or taking it a little bit closer to my neighborhood, if you want, this whole concept of Sukhokaz, which is a reality. It's not a mythical name. Sukhokaz is in Saudi Arabia. It's in Taif. It's about two hours away from Jeddah by car, Mm. uh, where people would get into that marketplace and where you've got festivals, where you've got camel races, horse races, etc. But it's also a place which symbolizes people sitting together and uh, talking about the future. We're talking about democracy, we're talking about the future, whilst in some ways the whole region of the Middle East, North Africa, the Gulf is a different story, Mm. is mired down, not only in corruption, but in an authoritarianism that is stifling. And no wonder that so many intellectuals across the whole Arab region, and there are so many of them in Lebanon and elsewhere in Syria. Syria is full of uh, people uh, who think about these things, are unable to do much because they're manacled. They're manacled by power and money coming together. And when the two are there together with ulterior motives and ulterior political interests, supported by forces from outside, Russia, China, United States, EU, UK, all this makes the region a very sad 
place. So will I see the birth of a Palestine? Will I see an improvement in the region? Will I one day say, you know, it's a pleasure to talk about a region that has created everything from algebra to whatever, find its breath again? I don't know. <sighs> How do we be upbeat? Well, I'll tell you one thing, though. It's a lot of the turn of phrase stuff that I will remember as well. I mean, how many times, you know I can't not bring this up on our last podcast, how many times did we hear that immortal phrase from those lips there, I am not a prophet? <laughs> and yet saying that, you were right about a few things ahead of time, notably, because often after we'd recorded a, a podcast, I'd send you a little message yep. a couple of days later going, wow, you said that two days ago, or you said that a week ago in yep. some cases. So no, you're not a prophet, but you're a canny operator and you've got a good brain and you are right about things more often than not. Well, you've got to have the instinct, James, I think. You've got to have the political nous. But also, if this brings us to the beginning of this uh, final podcast of Middle East Analysis, you have to have the boldness, the courage to say it as it is. And I look at things and that's why I, well, that's how I say it. Now, there are some people who like that and there are some people who don't like that because by saying what I say freely, I inherently deinstitutionalize myself. And if there is anything that people don't like is when the system is deinstitutionalized, that you're not working within the parameters that you're allowed to work in. And that happens in politics. It happens in religion. It happens in academia. It happens everywhere. If you sort of start being a bit troublesome, then you're not liked by some people. But troublesome maybe is one way of... Uh, explaining my prophecies. I look at the region. I know the region well enough. I know the language. I know the culture. I know the religions uh, as, as well as most people, I suspect. I wouldn't say better or worse. And therefore, uh, for me, it's a question of just trying to translate. This is what we've been doing at, at, at base. What are all the podcasts we did, either in a previous life or in the current format of Middle East analysis. Or maybe in the life to come. Or in Let's the life to come. Let's be positive. What have we tried to do? What have I tried to do? I'm not taking call to Newcastle in the sense that I'm not teaching the Arabs what they know in the street anyway. Any Arab sitting in a coffee shop in any country in the Arab world, playing backgammon, having that thick uh, coffee that you and I have had at times, would know exactly what's happening. The problem is that that person is powerless to change the facts on the ground. So I'm not telling anything to the Arabs, which is why I, I've always told you my audience is not really the Arab world. My audience has always been the West. And sometimes all I've hoped is that you represent them, really. And it certainly always felt that way. Yeah. Not just them, but primarily the voiceless or, or those that, that have energy, but they don't really have the stage to do much about it. Yeah. And those voiceless people you're talking about, I've tried to project their voices onto our own realities in the United Kingdom, within the European Union, within the West, if we call it the West, whatever that term means these days. Uh, to try and tell people, listen, 
These are also people like you who have problems. We have problems here. We have problems with the NHS, with transport, with anything that I could think of. They have their problems as well. We have pro political problems as well. We saw the circus that we went through. Three, four prime ministers, six, seven chancellors of the exchequer. I mean, come on, we're supposed to have been one of the most avant-garde countries uh, before Brexit. So look at our state today. Look at the EU now trying to desperately find some more gas and oil in order to be able to survive the Ukraine-Russia war. All this is true, but at the same time, in the Arab world, there is so much potential that has not yet been unleashed. And that is the potential that I'm trying to relay to the West, that when you think of an Arab, don't think immediately of a terrorist or somebody who is worthless. Think of a person who is like you, but who has not had the benefits that the system provides to that person. That's basically it. Here, you're unemployed, you can sort yourself out somehow with the help of the state. In the Arab world, you're un unemployed, you pretty much curl up and die. That is the difference that I've been trying uh, to tell the people and to remind them that by supporting authoritarian regimes, by supporting rulers that are, who are hell-bent on staying in power, well, we've had those as well. I mean, there were a couple of people who didn't desperately didn't want to leave 10 Downing Street, but they weren't Dare killing... I say that's happened in America too. That's happened in America as well. But they aren't killing people in order to stay in power. In the Arab world, they're quite happy to either kill them or bribe them in order to stay in, in power. And for that qualitative change, for that qualitative leap to happen, you need to unleash the potential of the people, which is why I was so happy, despite all the negative publicity that was heaped upon the World Cup in Qatar, uh, with the BBC and everybody else talking about, yes, but what about the fact that you can't have beer? Or what about the fact that the laborers are this, that, and the other? And I'm the first person to admit and to accept that there are serious blemishes there. But I was so happy that the Arab world, the Muslim world, is hosting the most important football event uh, in the world. And that, in a sense, is to show the potential that they had. And guess what? They did a brilliant job at that, even though people were thinking, oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Yes, it did work. And we had surprises. And at the end, Messi got his trophy. So in this is where I'm going at. The potential that's there, the people who write about the Arab world, who think with the Arab world, are people who want to open up that potential rather than being squeezed between two polarities that are as savage as one as the other, either authoritarianism and kleptocracy on the one hand or radical religious governing and uh, skewing reality on the other. That is not the reality of the Arab world. And that's basically the message I've tried to give to people and remind them that we have colonized these countries for years and years. So we bear some of the uh, responsibility for where they are 
today rather than pretend that we are all beacons of democracy today as we were uh, 50 years ago. That also is a very vulnerable argument to make. Yeah, absolutely we do. It does also take me to another Harry phrase, though, listening to what you've just said. You know, talking about the people, raising up the voice of those that can't be heard. Between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. It's another one of your phrases. You use it all the time. But that's exactly why, isn't it? The choices, mm, they're not so great. You you either have, you know, is, is it better the devil you know? Or is it walking into a new dorm that might actually be a lot worse? Absolutely. And Egypt is a prime example of that when... Uh, Mubarak was ousted. Old general, new general. Yeah. Mubarak was ousted. Obama agreed with that ouster. Who came in? Somebody called Mursi. Who was Mursi? He was part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. So the generals did not like the fact that you've got an Islamist or a Muslim uh, president. So el-Sisi came and took over and pretty much Uh, kicked him, put him in jail, and now he's died. So in a sense, you're absolutely right. Between a rock and a hard place, or if I want to go again into uh, Greek abstractism, I would say between Crypto and Scylla. And in a sense, you have either religious zealotry on the one hand, which is not the reality of much of the Arab world, or you've got the authoritarianism and that sort of vengeful... Uh, approach of rulers to say it's my way or the uh, highway. The prisons in uh, uh, Egypt, in other places, they're notorious in Syria and elsewhere, are full of people who all they wanted to do is to express their opinions and aspire for something better. But no, you're not allowed to do that. You're thrown in, 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 in jail and you're tortured. And yet we in the West, who proclaim to be so democratic and so free-minded uh, and good thinkers and what have, whatever else you want to add, we actually support some of these regimes because it is in our interest to do so. This is why I tell you that uh, I get troublesome sometimes for some people because I say the way I see it and I'm deinstitutionalized. I don't worry too much about whether the church agrees with me or whether a politician agrees with me. I just say it uh, as it is and then I bear the consequences myself. One of those consequences being sadness. Yeah, but other consequences that have worried me about you in the past have been whether you're going to get actually say something that might get you killed. Well, I mean, uh, there is a very nice Arabic saying, Al-A'mar biyadillah. Uh, our lives are in the hand of God. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. If I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die. So there, that's not going to prevent me from having the odd cigar or the odd pint of Guinness, nor is it going to prevent me from saying things as they are and then disclaiming all the falsehoods and uh, lies and populism that is thrown at us in order for us to accept it and live by it. No, that's not it. And uh, for me, the MENA and Gulf region were, for good or for worse, are the regions that I've been interested in, except, and here I can assure listeners that... Uh, James is going to smile, 
except when it comes to an entirely different region, and that's Armenia and the South Caucasus, where my origins flow out because at base I'm Armenian. Well, Harry Haynes on YouTube, if you want to hear a, a bit more about that, absolutely. Now, look, we're fast approaching the end, literally the end. Although, this is the end. To, to leave our listeners with, you know, those that may want to hear our voices again in some capacity, it has resurrected once before. I'm not saying it's going to resurrect again in this format, but I'm sure and I hope, I, I deeply hope and I pray that we will be talking in front of these mics again in some capacity in the future. I hope so. Uh, and uh, yeah, you and I have done, I am quite happy to say that you and I have done a good job in terms of talking about this region for many a year. Maybe now it's time to go silent for a while and mm. then maybe resurrect it in a different uh, format. And listeners should also realize that your responsibilities professionally have increased enormously, and yet you've always found time to do this one little glitch every month with Middle East analysis, and for that I'm thankful. No, it's, the pleasure is, is literally all mine. I've, I've loved it. It's been educational for me, eye-opening, fun, actually, and I hope people will forgive me for using that word. We'll go right back to the, the top of the show. We're not taking things lightly. You either laugh or cry with some of these these terribly, True. terribly traumatic incidents. But I think you've put your finger on it throughout the whole of this podcast and actually throughout the whole of this 12-year strand. Human beings, humanity, how we relate to one another as humans. Can we speak up for those that don't have a voice? Can we actually just lift the lid a bit and show what's going on and talk about the context behind that? You've never, ever professed to be at the cutting edge of news. We've always said we no. can't particularly do news and be topical and, and, and newsworthy. I mean, I think elements have, have done that, but not because that's what we set out to do. This is this is lifting the lid. And actually, I've tried to just lift the lid literally on, on your brain and just allow it to come forward and, and entertain us as well as inform us. And you've certainly done that for me. I'm hugely grateful. I'm a little bit sad, but anyone would be, because despite any professional commitments I have, this is a labour of love. And I've really, really enjoyed it. But that's partially because we're friends. It's also because I respect you and I do understand the wealth of knowledge you can impart and the style in which you do it, which has made it popular. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you, James. And maybe the last word should be to thank our listeners, yeah. all of them, those with exalted positions, those in academia, those in politics, those in the church, those in the uh, coffee shop who have basically taken the time to listen to a different viewpoint about a region that they might not necessarily have access to, at least not physically, and where the news is sometimes warped or distorted. So to them and to their patients, I think we also owe a big thanks. Yeah, we absolutely do. Now, I was going to give you a final thought because I always do and have done for over a decade. That's a pretty appropriate final thought in many ways, unless you want to delve into something else. No, I don't want to delve into something else. But again, as unscripted, I hadn't even thought what my final uh, thought would uh, I've only be. asked you 160 times. You have. <laughs> you have. That's absolutely true. Whether I put on my Armenian hat or whether I put on my MENA and Gulf region hat or whether I just speak for myself, 
The final thought is only one word. In Latin, it's sperare. In English, it's hope. That hope is not totally dimmed or killed. That is what gives us the instinct to live. If we lose hope, we lose the love of life. And that is what should remain at the back of our minds, that despite the darkness, somewhere in that tunnel, there is light. The question is, when will we come across the light and how good are we to discover it? Oh, very well put, Harry. I'm thinking of calling this final podcast Walls Are Meant for Climbing. <laughs> I like it. Because I like it, it, it has many connotations. It occurred to me as we were talking. I have a good picture in mind as well. And that is an aspirational image. I love one, it. One day those walls will come down. One day the walls will come down, whether they're human walls or physical walls. And so to the listeners and to you and to everybody, thank you for putting up with uh, my thoughts for all these years and maybe another reality in another format with you, James, sometime in the future. Oh, Harry, honestly, as I say, the pleasure is, is all mine. And I thank you as well, listeners. James Abbott checking out here after so many years. Very, very grateful to have had you uh, accompanying us on this journey. Harry, I am genuinely grateful. I'm going to shake your hand on air. There we go. Thank you very much. And, yeah. and maybe now you can invite me for a pint of Guinness. Let's do that. <laughs> this is Middle East Analysis for the final time. Goodbye and God bless. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.